0: Thank you for braving the snow and and the heavy winds. I hope that that today will be an encouragement to you and also an opportunity for you to encourage others. Well, this morning we want to continue our study on the essentials of the Christian faith. And um, before we get into a review and get into today's lesson, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thankful that we can come from outside of the cold and the snow and the heavy winds to to be able to um, to worship you and to reflect on your mercy, uh, Lord. We are protected in that way from those elements, but but um, Lord, we're also thankful to be within a body of believers in which we can be uh, protected in your care, where we can have uh, your presence come and join with us through the person of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that now that He would be Alive and well within us, as we seek to understand your word and respond to it with faithful obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me uh, begin with a, a question how would you how would you finish this sentence? A Christian is someone who a Christian is someone who what? Okay, so the Christian is someone who trusts in Christ. Anyone else want to? Follows Christ? Good. Um, Let's think about what an unbeliever might say to that question. A Christian is someone who what? What do you think they might think a Christian is? Yeah? Okay, so someone who... What was that, Jennifer? Goes to church. Okay, does good things. Maybe they might think someone who's been baptized or they've walked an aisle. Um, but to complete this sentence the way that Jesus would, we need to understand what he thinks a Christian is. And that's the purpose of these last two studies, to answer that question. What is a Christian? And we want to do that within the framework of what we've already seen in the first four studies, which uh, focuses primarily on um, this idea of, of who Jesus is, right? If we're going to know what Christianity is all about, we have to know who Jesus is. Jesus is, remember the first leg of the stool, Jesus is the Son of God. He is God in human flesh. And then the second leg was that Jesus is crucified, that He has died for sin, and then that He's resurrected. He's died. He doesn't remain dead. That's why we don't have crosses around here with Jesus on it. Uh, he's, he's now alive. He's not on the cross anymore. He's, uh, the grave is open. He's in heaven interceding for us. And so, um, based on that foundation, we want to, to build upon that and, and, uh, and see what it means to be a Christian. Because it's not enough to, to just know who Jesus is. There's something that we have to do if we're going to be a Christian. And so we could ask it this way. On what basis does God accept us? On what basis does God accept us? If God is our judge, as we learned in, in, um, in lessons 2 and 3, where you know He came and poured out His wrath upon Jesus for the sin of mankind, if God is our judge, then what kind of hope do we have? What basis can we come before God and say, you know, you have to accept me? Um, we're not, we, we are saved, not on the basis of our own merit or righteousness, but, but as we saw last time, on the basis of God's free and loving grace alone, based on God's grace alone. And, and God demands this standard of perfection. So let's start with Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Mark chapter 1. This was the question that we started with at the very beginning of this series. What is a Christian? And let's see how Jesus called people, or what Jesus called people to do when he began his ministry. This is the first record that Mark has of Jesus speaking. Obviously, he spoke before this, but this is Mark's first record of Jesus speaking. But someone read verse um, why don't you read verses fourteen and
1: fifteen? In the okay.
0: So a Christian is someone who just fundamentally belongs to the future kingdom of God, someone who is going to enter into the kingdom. That's how we could describe it. Now, at this time, I would suggest that Jesus was offering the kingdom to these people, and they could have accepted Him and received the kingdom right then and there, but instead they rejected Him. But but here, what we want, want to see is, what is the condition for a person to enter the kingdom of God? And what Jesus says in verse 15 is that the kingdom of God is near at hand, so... Repent and believe in the gospel. And so here's how we could describe a Christian. This is what what Bill is saying that a Christian is someone who who follows Christ. He, and then he said I would go on to explain the the gospel. And the gospel is this that 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 Jesus you know the first part Jesus is the Son of God. He died for sin. He resurrected, and he offers to all life who come to him. And the way that we receive we receive that life is by these two commands: repent and believe. And so the rest of this morning we're going to focus on that first part, the repentance part, and then the next week we'll finish up by looking at what it means to believe and kind of bring the two together. What you're going to find is that most of the time when you find the word repentance in scripture, you're going to find the other word believe. They they often are together and repentance is always listed first whenever you see that. So that that tells us that there is some there's something that we need to do with regard to repentance before we believe or really they're, they're, they're kind of two sides of the same coin, or, or two different sides of the same coin. So turn to chapter 8 of Mark, chapter 8. What is repentance? It's not a word that we use regularly outside of church, really. Um, is, is repentance the same thing as being sorry? Is it merely a feeling or an emotion, or is there something more to it? Consider the case when a child is caught with his hand in the cookie jar. And so, realizing that he has been caught, he fears punishment, and he might cry out, I'm sorry, please don't spank me. Right? And if you're a parent, then you know that these pleas of his and his tears generally are not motivated by by remorse over the wrong that he's done. But only because he's been caught and because he fears the the imminent punishment. He fears the loss of some privilege. This isn't repentance. Repentance is not just seeing what the person's done and realizing the consequences then being fearful of the consequences. That's not repentance. Um, that may be a part of it, but that's not repentance in itself. On the other hand, he might say when he's caught, please don't spank me. I'll do the dishes all week. Okay, so this isn't repentance either. This is what... Exactly. It's, it's penance. I will pay for what I've done. Now, in repentance, there will be consequences for sin, you know, like with, with David in Psalm 51 or Second or Samuel 7, where he commits the sin with Bathsheba. And, and what, was, what was one of the consequences of his sin? That his child would die, right? And so some of that is included in the results or the consequences of sin. But that's not repentance, just being fearful of that and maybe saying, okay, I'll pay it back. That's, I think that's part of, of a of a repentant type heart, but that's not the whole picture. King Saul, as we saw last Sunday night, 1 Samuel 15 is a good example of someone who confesses his sin but actually doesn't repent. You know, he's more concerned about saving face, and so he says, you know, he grabs onto the robe of Samuel and and says, Samuel, please come with me before the people. And and Samuel says, don't you realize you've lost the kingdom? You've lost it all, Saul, and it's only a matter of time. King Saul acknowledged his sin but was unwilling to repent. So that's not repentance either. Here in Mark 8, we have a description by Jesus of what a truly repentant person looks like. Would Someone read verses 34 and 35. All right, so what picture do we have of repentance here in verse thirty four what what How does Jesus describe repentance? What would you say would be the synonymous phrase in verse thirty
2: four
0: okay what well, deny himself right He must deny himself He must come after me and he must deny himself. This denying of self is at the heart of what biblical repentance really is. In in practical terms, you repent when you acknowledge that you're a sinner and you resolve to put not yourself first, but Christ. And so, repentance presumes sin. It it understands that that we are sinful people. If we don't understand ourselves as sinful people, then we won't see our need to repent. We'll have nothing to repent of, right? A self-righteous person doesn't repent. A self-righteous person doesn't say, I'm sorry but a person who's repentant acknowledges his sin, denies himself. Uh, Remember the spiritual picture we have of ourselves in the second lesson here when we were looking at Jesus was crucified, that we were in bondage to sin. We were in shackles, hopeless before God who hates sin and who will judge it. And what we need is Christ to ransom us and free us from that penalty of sin. And in order for that to happen, it requires that we put Him first. That is, we say about sin what God says about it, and we acknowledge that we can't pay for this sin on our own. Right? That's penance. Penance says, I can pay for this sin on my own. I, I can just do enough good things, and then God will have to accept this, this um, repentance of mine. But that's not repentance. True repentance involves not just fear of punishment, or the attempt to make up for our sins, but actually a deep remorse for having offended God. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7.10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So there is a sorrow, Paul says here in 2 Corinthians, there is a sorrow that leads to death. There actually is a sorrow over sin that leads to death. And what we need, what God demands, is a sorrow that that produces, um, that produces salvation. And one who is truly repentant does not try to excuse or to justify his error, but rather that's the blame-shifting idea. Again, back to Saul, that good example, or really a bad example for us, but but a good example for bad repentance. Um, that he would he claimed innocence before Samuel. What I, I did do what what God told me to do, and he says. Well, what's this bleeding of sheep? Well, it was actually the people. They wanted to keep the sheep and, and some of the best of the animals so they could sacrifice them to you, God. So he blame shifts. See, see that's not repentance because he's seeking to justify his own error um, or in other cases, like with the child, the cookie jar, tries to make restitution. So repentance is not the same thing as feeling bad or fear, feeling sorrowful because there is a sorrow that leads to death. Repentance may include these emotions, but it has to be more than that. Let's turn to, um, we'll, we'll come back to Mark here. You can keep your place there if you'd like. But 1 Thessalonians 1, and this I think is the best description of repentance that we have in the Scriptures. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10. Paul here is writing to Christians in a city that he had never visited and he tells them that how he has heard from others about how they became Christians and listen to what he says here in verses 9 and 10 and see if you can see the two aspects of repentance that he includes in in these two verses. Someone read verses 9 and 10. Okay, so I think verse nine is talking about repentance, and verse ten is talking about faith. So, where, what do you think? What, the, what do you think Paul uses to describe repentance? How does he describe repentance in verse nine? Okay, so this is what I I tried to bring out last Sunday night with with the example of King Saul. Okay, it is turning away from idols to God. It's turning to God, saying, "God, yes, what you say about sin, what you say about." Um, Uh, about about being restored is right and what I have done and what I have been following and pursuing is wrong. I'm going to turn away from that and to you. That's repentance. And then Paul also heard about them that they were responding with faith, that they were waiting from, verse 10, waiting for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead. That is, they're confident of God's future uh, sending of His Son, that, that Christ will return. So it wasn't that, We'll get to the faith part next weekend. But, but but it wasn't that the Thessalonians had just felt guilty about their former way of life, that, you know, that was really bad that we were kind of involved in idolatry. But they actually had turned from it and to Christ, and now they were putting their hope in Christ, and that, that is repentance. The Westminster Shorter Catechism describes repentance like this. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of a sin turn it turn from it to God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience so now we've looked at what repentance is do you have any questions before we we move on so we're going to kind of flush it out a little bit more here in Mark's gospel but do you have any questions okay first What is repentance? It's putting Christ first before my will. Before my will. You can turn back to chapter 8 now. And uh, this passage that Paul read earlier, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. So in denying ourselves, we take up our cross and we we save our lives. The life that, that we once had, we lose that life in order to save this future life with Christ. And Jesus is saying, if you want this better life, if you want this best life, then you need to turn from your sins. You must deny yourself. We have to put Christ first before our own will. Our will says, I want to go this way and enjoy this sin. And I'm going to continue to do that. And, and what, what true repentance is, is saying, I'm giving up what my will wants and I'm going to submit my will to what God wants. And this is something that, is, that has to happen initially at salvation, that, that no one can come to Christ apart from repentance. No one can come to Christ apart from repentance. But we need to recognize that that's not the only time we repent. So I repented back there, so I'm, I'm done with that. But rather, uh, uh, the life of a Christian is one of ongoing repentance and faith, not as a way to earn our salvation. Okay? Our salvation is a one one point in time it can never be earned. But the life of a Christian is one that's constantly recognizing his sin and then responding with sorrow for that sin, genuine grief for that sin, and turning from it into God. So maybe an illustration might help. An illustration of a house. What do you do when you buy a new home? Well, first there's the move-in day, and this happens one time, right? But let's just say you have one house for your whole life, okay? So it happens one time. But then as you move into the house, you get all that set up how you want it, but then the house is not complete because there's renovation and redecoration. And this is a progressive work that goes on. It actually never ceases. That's why I love uh, Lowe's I love the advertisement of Lowe's, never stop improving. And, you know, that's a good model for life, for the life of a Christian. You know, they had some commercials not too long ago from Lowe's where they just had, you know, a family growing up in a house. They were constantly changing it. And it was, it was a pretty powerful um, picture of what happens in a, in a house often. And you're constantly making renovations, and that's, that's a good thing. And and that should be what goes on in our lives as Christians. That, that there is an initial time in which the Spirit of God moves in and we give Him access to the house. But do you know what? That work of repentance and faith needs to continue because He needs to go into each of the rooms and start cleaning them up, right? Because there are many aspects of our life that need to be cleaned up. And so that move-in day where we have that new birth, where we are regenerated, where the Spirit imparts life to us, where He comes into our house, is a one-time action. But the, but the renovation process goes on for the rest of your life. So he, the Spirit's going to come in and He's going to renovate the room of your family or the room of your job or the room of your ambition or your leisure or your money, your marriage. He's not content to just stay in the entryway of the house. Kind of just let them into our hearts and then say, okay, here you've got this little spot and then all these other little compartments over here, those are mine. Okay, I'm going to go out and do what I want. I'm going to treat my family the way I want. I'm going to do this and that. And the Holy Spirit's like, no, you wanted me, you're getting all of me and I'm going to renovate the whole thing. And, you know, just to kind of take another step of this renovation analogy... It it has to get ugly before it gets pretty, doesn't it? When it comes to renovation, you can't just move from what you had before to the new product, the new finished product, right? It takes some messiness, and and that's the nature of of repentance. There's going to be some times where God digs in and and pulls up this these ugly roots of sin that are buried deep down within our hearts, and and it, it's ugly for a while, but there's there's restoration and there's improvement, there's renovation. And over time, it looks more and more beautiful, more and more presentable for the person of Jesus Christ to whom we will be given on the final day. So, when we turn from our sin and surrender our lives, our wills to God, we do that at one time in order for the Spirit to, to come into our hearts, but then we, we do it ongoingly, if that's a word, through the rest of our lives, uh, showing that, hey, I I didn't want Jesus to be my king just when I got saved. I want Jesus to be my king my whole life. I want him to be my master. So I'm going to give myself to him over and over again. All right, any questions on that? Putting Christ first before our will. All right, good. Next is before my ambitions. Putting Christ first before my ambitions. Let's look at the next two verses. Someone read, would someone please read verses 36 and
2: 37? Picking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me but him. who sent me. How about chapter
0: 8? <laughs> yeah, that was helpful. All right, thank you. Here we we see that to put Christ first means to place him before our, our ambitions. And throughout history, people have been seeking to gain the whole world as Jesus would call it, you know, to a small or a larger degree, that is by accumulating power and money, popularity, pleasure, prestige, a, a position, you know, just watch the presidential race going on and you see that people are trying to gain something that they want and it's no different now than it was in times past and these things are not wrong in and of themselves there's nothing inherently wrong with money there's nothing inherently wrong with the pleasures of this world uh, as long as you understand that that all things are given to us by god now the pleasures of this world that is the sinful pleasure of this world is not what i'm referring to here but but in and of themselves, these things are not necessarily wrong. But but if we lust after them, if we allow these things to become our master, then we're no no longer putting Christ first in our lives. And this is why the the Bible says, with regard to money, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not that money is evil. Money's not inherently good or evil. It's it's simply in a tool that we can use for good or for evil. And 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 if we lust after it, then you know if we we seek for this. This powerball lottery to try to win it, you know um then then we shouldn't be surprised when we are ensnared by its its trappings. I was just reading this morning that it may get up to one point three billion dollars, which uh is crazy but but people will still put down their two dollars per ticket, you know just to make sure that they have a chance, even though it's one in a billion or whatever the chances are. And the point is, is that that we need to put our ambitions. You know, I I have these, this ambition to get a lot of money, or a lot of power, or, or sinful pleasure, or or prestige, or whatever. And and we need to put those things in subjection to what Christ wants for us. Again, it's back to the the house analogy that that we need to submit ourselves to what the Spirit wants. So we invite Him into our home, and and we say, listen, here's the keys to the all the rooms in my house. And giving them to you. You you take them as you please and start cleaning them out. Now typically what the Spirit does is he doesn't just go and just tear everything down to the studs and then start back from scratch. Typically what he's doing is he's doing a room or two at a time. Have you found that to be true in your life? That that sometimes we can get overwhelmed when there's just so many things. And and that's why it's good for us to just say, Listen, wherever you want to work here, show show me my sin. Um Reveal to me the sin that is within me and and help me to be restored to God and and to to walk better with Him. So we need to put Christ first, that is, submit ourselves to the Spirit before our our will and before our ambitions. Any questions on that? Okay, how about um, verse 38? Would someone read that for us? Alright, so repentance means putting Christ first before my will, before my ambitions, and then thirdly before my reputation. Before my reputation. In this passage, Jesus warns those who would place their own reputation before Christ. So um, so what that tells us is that putting first putting Christ first is not always going to be easy. In in verse thirty four, Jesus says that you know we must deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Him. That is, we need to take up the burden of being a Christian if we're going to be faithful. And it's not always popular to follow Jesus sincerely. Here's how John Stott put it. He says either we are unfaithful in order to be popular, or we look unpopular in order to be faithful. We can't be both. We can't be. He would argue that we can't be both faithful and popular. So the summary in this entire passage is that we must put Christ first before our will, before our ambition, and before our reputation. Now, that's not all that repentance involves, but these are some fundamental components of what it means to put Christ first. That those who are ruled by sin, according to its very nature, will look to themselves first. They will make sure they always do what is best for themselves. And if you think about those who who are who have plunged themselves into sin and destruction they always are thinking about themselves but Christians on the other hand don't look to self first instead they look to Christ first they say what what is it that Christ wants me to do against my own will if if necessary against my ambitions against even my own reputation if if this makes me um, look shameful in the face of of people, if this makes me look unpopular, then so be it. All right, next. Repentance uh, looks like putting Christ first before my pride. Before my pride. Verses 43 through... Oh, I'm sorry, chapter 9 this time. Chapter 9. Verses 43 to 48. Mm-hmm. All right, so follow along as I read this one. It says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two hands to go into hell into unquenchable fire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame, that is, enter eternal life lame, than having your two feet to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. One thing that is amazingly obvious is that Christ believes in a literal and eternal hell. And, and fear of this, hopeful, uh, of this hopeless place ought to be so great that we take whatever measures necessary. This is what he's talking about. He's not saying literally cut off your hand, literally cut off your feet, literally gouge out your eyes. He's not saying that. He's saying go to the greatest extreme necessary to make sure that you have eternal life. Do radical surgery. Okay, it's like the uh, Aaron Ralston, I think it was, the, the, um, this, the guy who wrote a book about um, being trapped in a, uh, under a boulder out in Utah, I think it was and um, had to cut off his arm. If he's going to have life, it's the only way he could survive. He had to cut off his arm. So, so the point is here that, that we need to have radical surgery. What is it that's keeping us from eternal life? That's what repentance looks at. It says, God, I'm willing to give up anything. I'm, doing, I'm willing to go to the greatest extremes in order to turn away from this sin that is besetting me, that's pulling me away from you and to turn towards you. I'll do whatever it takes. So, we need to we need to turn from our pride. The Bible says the pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16:18. So, are you too proud to submit to Jesus Christ as King? Do you, do you trust that somehow your own merit, apart from Christ, that God is going to say, "Well done, good and faithful servant"? This this passage here. And Mark 9 is, I think, designed by Jesus to unsettle us so that we recognize how serious sin can be. It will keep people from coming into the presence of God. And so the only way that God will accept us is if we turn from that. This doesn't mean the only way he'll accept us is if we're perfect in that area. It means that we acknowledge sin for what it is, put Christ first and be willing to accept the consequences of our sin. So that that leads us to this next question, which uh, perhaps would be the the next natural question. That is, is it too hard? Or we could say it this way, isn't it too hard? I mean, this just seems too hard. All, All this talk of submission, denying self. I mean, who could possibly do this? We'll turn to chapter 10 now. And would someone read verses 29 through 31? Okay, that's good thank you so um, so is it too hard? Well, Jesus promised us that if we were going to follow him, that it would not be easy. right? Look at that first verse it says that that some people are going to have to leave their own family for the sake of the gospel. Do you know someone who had to do that? That is that their family abandoned them or ostracized them because of their acceptance of Jesus Christ you know we we kind of um, don't have to suffer that kind of persecution as much here in the states but but certainly I know of people around the world uh, in different cultures who have had to experience that very thing and and um, but but notice verse 30 but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age houses brothers sisters mothers so so even though you, a person might lose all of those things, those families and, and the houses and all those things, they're going to gain so much more, that is, in this present time, in the families that they join themselves to, right? So a person like that, let's say, that, that whose family just dismissed them, well, they join themselves to a body of Christ where they have a lot of family who loves them now. And that's why we often call ourselves you know, a church family or the family of God. But notice that that next phrase towards the end of verse 30, along with persecutions. And I think this is a promise for every believer, and that is that, that those who leave whatever it is to follow Christ will, with all these things that God gives to us, will receive persecutions in this life. But, notice the last part of verse 30, in the age to come, eternal life. So if you want to save your present life then don't be surprised when you lose it but if you want to, to if you're willing to lose your present life then 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 you will find life that is eternal life the life that's talked about talked about right here because many who are first will be last and and the last first so so if the gospel requires that we repent and with that repentance comes some kind of trouble potentially uh through persecutions and whatever then then where's the good news of the gospel because I thought gospel meant good news right where where's the good news well the, consider the promises here in this text that Jesus gives that he will not receive okay, uh, let me find it here, but that he will receive verse thirty a hundred times as much now in the present age, and I think if you skip down say uh, an ellipsis, you know, dot 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 down to the end of the verse, and in the age to come. So you'll receive a hundredfold of what you've paid, in a sense, of what you've given up in this life. So all those persecutions that you faced in this life, all this this um this unpopularity that you face in this life, then then you'll be paid all that back times a hundred. And the next life will receive eternal life. And this is the beautiful promise of the gospel that, that that somehow God would consider us to be worthy of receiving suffering on behalf of Christ. Uh, and, and for that devotion, God will not overlook it. God's not just kind of um, just standing back, unconcerned about the, the persecutions and the trouble that, that Christians face. He's not going to have to 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 have a bunch of video to go back and, and determine what all was done. You know, because right now he's so hands-off and so unconcerned about what's going on. No, God knows exactly what's going on in every Christian's life, and he will repay it. The, the kind of sacrifices that we make will be repaid to us by God. Not because he has to, not because we've earned something, but because our God is merciful. And he, I think another reason, too, is that he wants to set out for us a reward, right? That this, the Christian life is not just all sorrowful and, and trouble... And, and frustration and giving up things. It's also receiving things, isn't it? It's it's the joy that we have knowing that we have a right relationship now, but also the abundant joy that will come in the next life. And so that promise is a completely proper motivation for us to have when it comes to the Christian life. It's completely right of us to think that that I should be motivated not only by a fear of hell, right, but also I should be motivated by a reward for what God will give to those who actually finish the race. Those who, like Paul says in um, I think it's 1 Corinthians 9, said, I beat my body and make it my slave, um, so that, so that um, I, I will be able to win the prize, so that I'll be able to, to receive the imperishable wreath, that is this, this crown, effectively, that God gives to those who trust Him. All right, any questions on repentance before we summarize and conclude? Or comment? Yes.
1: Doesn't mean you won't sin after you get saved. Right. I was just thinking. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a question over in uh, Acts, the 16th chapter. Yeah. Where where the Philippian jailer turned to Christ. He just, he heard them praying and they're singing hymns and everything, and he turned, and that was his repentance right there when he turned to Christ from.
0: Yeah. Well, um, yeah, so he's talking about chapter 16 of Acts, verse 28. Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, we're all here. And he called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do, do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, and your house. So the question is, there's no explicit repentance mentioned here in this passage, so does that mean that a person, um, does that mean that that we need to find it in here, or that there's a different way that a person can be accepted by God? And I would suggest that um, we interpret the unclear passages with the clear passages. So what does Jesus say about repentance? What does Paul say about repentance in other places? Or, Or what does Paul say about how to accept the offer of the gospel? And and I would say that it's clear in the rest of Scripture that we need to repent and believe. And I think that's the same in the Old Testament, too, that a person had to turn from their sins and turn to God in faith. So um, I don't see it explicitly in here again, but, but, yeah, you're right. I mean, we could say, well, since he actually um, turned to them, that that would imply that he, he had to have repented. And what I'm saying is we don't have the whole story, so the fact that it's not here doesn't trouble me. Um, Could be, yeah. But that's how I would I would explain it. I would say, um, even though it doesn't make it explicit that repentance is here, we have other clear passages that, that re- require it. Right, but there's no talk of what his sin was before. Right. So I mean
2: a person who wasn't repentant would just go and say, this is what I want too. He wouldn't be, you know, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, so if they they went to here to prove that you only need to believe and not repent, if a person did that, I would take them to another passage and say, well, how do you respond to something like this where it says you must repent, or Jesus claimed throughout the Gospels, repent and believe in the Gospel, or John the Baptist before him, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. All right, that's a good question. Anyone else? Question or comment? All right, so we began with the question, what is a Christian? People answer it a number of different ways, um, maybe with a type of work that's being done. But what we're suggesting based on what Jesus tells us is that a Christian is someone who has repented of their sins and, as we'll see next time, that they believe in the gospel or they believe in Jesus Christ. So this this repentance involves putting Christ first as we turn from sin and we trust in Him. This is not a one-time thing, although it is one-time that is necessary in order for us to be saved, but it's an ongoing process as we grow in sanctification. We're constantly putting away our sins, being troubled by them, um, turning to God for help. And so the question that Jesus really puts before us, if, we're, if He's calling us to repent, is this. Will you serve Him first? Will you be willing to, to put Jesus Christ first when it comes to your will, your ambitions, your reputation and, and your pride. Um, that, that's what repentance looks like. Let's look at this last passage here that's on your handout Matthew 1128 and 29. It says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. This is Jesus, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So, in response to the question, is it too hard? Well, it's not easy but it's easier than, than having to bear your sins yourself. Notice that Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. He's saying that you're still going to have a yoke. Right? What's the yoke? It's where they, they put it on the two oxen, this heavy thing that basically kept them together. And and what what Jesus is saying is, you're still going to have a yoke when you follow me. You recognize that, right? But it's not the same kind of yoke. In fact, he calls it easy and light I'm going to take your heavy burden that you have, this yoke that's that's pulling you down, and actually is going to drive you into an eternal hell. I'm going to take that up from you and give you something that in comparison is so much easier, but it's still going to be some work. Ultimately, Jesus calls it rest for our souls at the end of verse 29. So will you put Christ first? Turn to the back of your handout with me and I just want to point you to... Um, First, the schedule next week. What is a Christian part two, which is to believe, so repentance this week, belief next week. And then also the assignment there uh, that I'd like you to do, uh, prepare you for next time. Read through Mark 1.8, 10 and 10.30, just three verses, and then answer this following question. What gifts does God promise to those who repent and believe? What does God give to those who repent and believe? And that's how we'll start uh, next time. All right. Any thoughts, questions? Jonathan. So
2: we have, I mean, as you've laid out, like, five things that you can look at in terms of what the sentence is. Yeah. And I think if you think about it, you can see that
0: possibly all five
2: of those things are in what the person in jail is. Dead. Okay. Yeah. So...
0: Yeah. Whatever else you wanted, so. Yeah. So if we just take the passages, it certainly is, is an indication of everything, right. Detail, so. Right. Yeah. So if you, if you if the person that was arguing for that passage, um, saying that's the way that a person comes to faith, then then this is the defense you might give. Is what Jonathan's suggesting? You just take the the passages that we used. So first, putting Christ before my will, we have to deny ourselves. So did the Philippian jailer deny himself in order to to receive Christ? And then secondly, before my ambitions, what is a profit if a man gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? So what the Philippian jailer recognized that his life was not even more important than his walk with God, right? Because if he were found out, then he would have been killed uh, for letting them out. Then putting Christ first before my reputation. What are the other guards going to think? We could kind of think about that way. He's not ashamed to to humble himself in that situation. And then before my pride, you know, cut off the most extreme or, or go to the most extreme, um, uh, go to the greatest extremes. How's that? Go to the greatest extremes in order to, to follow Christ. And it looks like that's what he did as well. So, yeah, that's good. That's good observation. I mean, um, so that would be more implicit. That's what I'm suggesting. Is that in Acts 16, that's more implicit that he repented rather than explicit. So I would go to other passages to prove that. But, but yeah, you definitely can can see um, how he was concerned about his sin and turning from it. All right, let's pray. I'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for uh, your grace and salvation. Thank you for making clear. The gospel and and the the weight and the seriousness of our sin or we don't want to to have and hold the burden of our sin all the way into eternity Um, who could stand under your wrath lord Um, and really the only person or people that can stand under your wrath are those who have been covered by the blood of jesus christ and so we're thankful that he has provided a way help us to live in light of that pray in jesus name amen